Let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, just ask the Lord to bless our time. Father in heaven, as uh, my brother Jeff said, now, Lord, we, I, I pray, have had our hearts prepared for the preaching, the teaching, the receiving of your word. Lord, give us uh, the ability to understand it well, to be convicted by it, and Lord, specifically what it means for each of us in our own hearts, in our own minds, our own souls. Lord, how we might live it out, both individually as a church. And we just, um, we thank you for this in advance. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who illuminates your word to us, who lives inside of us. Lord, is our helper, our guide. And now, Lord, we just, um, again, give you glory as we, as we uh, open up your word and just to see what it would have to say to us this very day. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If I, if I asked you to <clears throat> describe yourself and, and only to do it in positive terms positive characteristics to speak the things that maybe you are good at or or things that you have a a heart to do again positive attributes of yourself what might you say well you know you might say i i i tend to be a kind person even a loving person I care for people. I, I like to help them. I like to gift people things. Well, I, I rarely lose my temper. I'm... <laughs> that got to rise. <laughs> I'm fairly even keel or peaceable. Maybe you would think, I, well, I'm a good listener. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to give good advice, or, or I'm a hard worker, or I'm not frivolous with my money. I always give 100% to whatever it is I'm doing. <clears throat> but how many of us would describe ourselves as a saint? A saint. I was reminded of this yesterday. We had um, a brother, Steve Jackson, uh, from Faith Community Church up in Valencia down as our men's breakfast speaker. And he kind of uh, brought this up. And it was one of those you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's right. Saint. Uh, and, and the word saint in this day and age, it can have multiple meanings. And so we have to understand it, of course, in a proper context. But the truth is, this is how Scripture uh, sees you. This is how God sees you. As a saint. As far as you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, which is the book we've been kind of going through um, with our men's ministry and men's breakfast time over this year. But Jerry Bridges writes this about the church in Corinth. Quote, the church at Corinth was all messed up both theologically and morally. They were proud and factious. They tolerated gross immorality, sued each other in court, flaunted their freedom in Christ, abused the observance of the Lord's Supper, misunderstood the purpose of spiritual gifts, and were confused about the future resurrection of believers. Yet, when writing to them, Paul addressed them as saints. Or as those called to be saints, end quote. Interesting, because they don't sound very saintly, do they? And yet this is true of you and I as believers. Of course, in a biblical context, saints are those who are set apart by God as unto God. Those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. 
Furthermore, we read in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then down in chapter 2, verse 6, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is what is true about us. What is true about us as saints. And so my question to you this morning is, if this is the case, that you are indeed forgiven of your sins, you have eternal life with Christ, you are now considered to be God's saints, given every spiritual blessing, and you are actually seated at the right hand of Christ in the heavenly places, why would any of us ever return to our sin? Right? The answer is we, we shouldn't, of course. We shouldn't. And, and yet we understand we live in a sin-cursed world. We, we have these horrible sin-cursed bodies. And this will remain our struggle until we die or we go to, and go to be with the Lord or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And this is why we need to be constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves. The gospel, sometimes we, we think, well, that's, that's, that's what I believed in back when I got saved. But yet, it is, it is what we need to believe in, and like I said, even preach to ourselves and each other each and every day of our life until that time when we are with Christ. Reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves of what we once were. And that's the nature of today's study, our, our time in the Word this morning. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus, beginning in chapter 3. And we will again read verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Paul writes this to Titus on the island of Crete. About the, uh, the local church, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So last week we saw Paul remind the church of some of the things that, that they had previously been taught that he wanted to reemphasize with them. And now this week we hear Paul remind the church of what kind of people they once were prior to their salvation. And for the reasons we will discuss... And of course, this discussion directly relates to us as we too bore these same sinful characteristics. Now, Paul begins in verse 3 with eight descriptions of ungodly living, of a degenerate humanity, really. And in this, Paul includes himself, and he includes Titus, and he includes the believers there of Crete, saying, For we also once were. And this goes along with what we would read in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, also in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. And in fact, Paul was acutely aware of his sinful nature, especially when we hear from him in a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 when Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all that was how Paul saw himself so the the, the first sinful trait that we once were and that we should never return to is foolishness foolishness it's a compound word 
aneotos. It means, uh, well, a in aneotos means without, and neotos means to comprehend. So it simply means without comprehension or a lack of intelligence. Also one who does not govern his lusts. Paul contrasts it with the wise in Romans 1.14 when he says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, right? So it's the opposite of being wise to be a fool. In 1 Timothy 6.9, he says, How many foolish and harmful desires can plunge men into ruin and destruction. So foolishness is related to ruin and destruction. It's equivalent in the Proverbs tells us folly or foolishness is joy to him who lacks sense. But a man of understanding walks straight. Contrasted with that man of understanding. Proverbs 17 and verse 28 tells us even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips he is considered prudent. Versus blah, 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 right? And the foolishness just comes pouring out. Now, knowing that this characteristic was especially prevalent prior to our salvation, it demonstrates how our minds just did not grasp the self-evident truths about God. That is primarily how we were foolish. If you like, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, it's a passage we've been through a number of different times. Um, Here Paul begins to speak about unbelief and the consequences of unbelief. And so in Romans chapter 1, picking up in verse 18, it's this familiar passage where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident within them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, let me just interject. We call this general revelation, right? It is God revealing himself in a general way to all people, to his creation, uh, with his creation, okay, through his creation. You might remember Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And this is put inside of each and every human being, this understanding. But as we read, people do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They push it down. Back in Romans 1.21, we pick up and read, continuing on, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I guess that means there's no such thing huh, as a, a true atheist, right? Because here they knew God. Uh, Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That does well to describe a foolish person. It's the epitome of being a fool. Because only a fool denies God. Even though God has so obviously, so clearly revealed himself through his creation. And not just revealed himself, but made it evident within the heart of every human being. And the problem is when people would rather worship themselves than God, they foolishly suppress that truth again in unrighteousness. Turn, if, uh, if you like, to uh, Ephesians 4.17. Just uh, over to the right, not too far. Get through the Corinthians there and Galatians and Ephesians. In chapter 4 and verse 17, 
this text comes on the heels of the great unity of the faith passage that we looked at a few weeks ago when we were talking about unity in the church. Now in talking about the Christian walk, Paul gives us another tremendous definition of foolishness. Foolishness, especially for for those that are unbelievers or before we became believers. So Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. That would be foolishness of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. So friends, in relation to God, we just saw in the short passage that the foolish act like Gentiles, right? Unbelievers. They have zero mind towards spiritual matters. They have zero true understanding about God. They have zero participation with God. They are 100% ignorant, 100% hardness of heart, 100% callous, and 100% sensuality, impurity, and greediness. That's a pretty good definition of foolishness. And there's many other ways that that we have shown ourselves to be foolish, but by far the worst is when we would deny God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to continue further, and I'll leave this kind of for your own application, but how do, how do you and I, even as believers, sometimes demonstrate foolishness? Well, we might consider the next one, as it goes right into it. And that's disobedient. Disobedient. We saw this word used of the defiled and unbelieving back in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul said, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. It literally means unwilling to be persuaded. They are unwilling to be persuaded to truly know and love God and obey His commands. As the angel Gabriel said to Zacharias about his future son John the Baptist, back in Luke 1.17, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Ephesians 2 and verse 2 tells us about the sons of disobedience and how they are those who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We see the consequences of the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 5, 6, that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of of disobedience. Now, think about this. Why do we disobey God? Why do we disobey God? Simply put, because we think our way is better than God's way. I mean, it's just what it comes down to. God says, um, do this. And you say, mm, no, I'm not going to do that. God says, uh, don't do that. And you say, no, I'm going to do that. Why? Because we think we're right and God's wrong. I mean, it really is as simple as that. We, we think we know what's best for us versus God. We think we have our own best interests at heart, even much more so than God. King Saul. King Saul is a, a, a very good example of this. Keep uh, your, your bookmark, first, uh, Titus uh, 3, and turn back to uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel the prophet told Saul on behalf of God to strike Israel's enemies, the people and the city of Amalek, and utterly destroy it, destroy every person, Male, female, young, 
old and every beast that would be ox, sheep, camel, and donkey, to which Saul did. He even captured King Agag, but he spared his life. Unfortunately, we read this. Look at 1 Samuel 15, picking up in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. To which the Lord then says this to Samuel. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11, the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Now, now what's interesting about this is, is that at first, it really seems like Saul thinks that he had done the right thing. Because he tells Samuel, skip down to verse 20, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. That's the woman you gave me thing, right? But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Let's make it sound like it's a good thing, right? Well, but they did this to, to take and sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The implied answer is, of course not. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is in the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Saul wanted what he wanted. And he even then tried to disguise his sin by blame shifting. Made me think back to my acting days. God, through his word and the Holy Spirit, not an audible voice, God might impress upon me, no, Jay, don't take that part in that show. It really doesn't glorify me. In fact, it denigrates me. And I start reasoning in my own mind, well, no, Lord, the part's fine, even though, yeah, the movie's not that great. It's kind of yucky, you know, but, or it might be, uh, yes, the, the part you're right is less than glorifying, but it's necessary to tell the story, Lord, which, which isn't so bad, or... Or it could be a little more simple, but I need the money. Or this might be my big break, you know. Or, or this opportunity may not come around again. Or I, I really want to work with this director, though. Or I really want to work with this, this actor or this company. Or, but I want to do this work because I haven't worked in a while, Lord. And I'm getting a little antsy here. And I justify it. Would try and justify it because I don't think that God really has my back. That he really isn't going to have my back. And I, I think I've got to take matters into my own hands. You know that trusting in God is good for some things. But right now, I, you know, God's missing something here. And I, I've got to take control. After all, I'm the one who knows what's best for me. I want what I want is what it comes down to, friends. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Not even God. Now, Part of our problem when we get into this kind of a justifying mindset, trying to justify our disobedience, is what we see from the next one back in Titus 3. And that is that we're deceived. We're deceived. It literally means to cause to wander or lead astray. And the question is, who or what deceived us and in what sense? Now remember the context are things that kept us from God. 
back in our unbelieving days. And of course, this goes back to the garden even. It goes back to the garden and the woman being deceived fell into transgression as we read in 1 Timothy 2.14. And of course, that is when Satan, as the serpent, tempted Eve by telling her that God had... Um, that God lied and that she would uh, indeed not die if she ate from the tree that God told her not to eat from because if she ate from it, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God, knowing good and evil. This is corroborated in 2 Corinthians eleven three, which tells us how the serpent deceived Eve. In Revelation 12 and verse 9, this tells us that the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, right? Not just Eve, the whole world. 1 Timothy 4.1 even speaks of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, those under Satan's purview. So, okay, Satan and his spirits and demons deceive people. Believers and unbelievers alike. Other people also deceive us, right? Matthew 24, verses four to five, Jesus says to the disciples, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So we can be deceived by other people. The world can also deceive us, right? First John 2 and 16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things of the world can deceive us. Our own wicked hearts deceive us, right? As we understand from Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the worst is when unbelievers are deceived. And because of this, they will not come to the truth of Jesus Christ. They will not believe in the gospel. And they will not then be saved. And of course, it is not good when Christians are deceived. Whether that's directly by Satan and his demons or another person or the world. Or by someone's own deceitful heart. In fact, sin comes about because we have been deceived, even as believers. This doesn't mean we aren't responsible for us being deceived. Of course we are. When we allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking, you know, our way is better than God's way, we are, of course, held responsible for that choice of sin, so we can't do that, you know, uh, well, I was deceived. I was deceived by the devil. I was deceived by other people or the world. It's not my fault. No, it's still our fault. There are consequences then, of course, for allowing yourself to be deceived. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The point being, repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. In other words, the consequences for unbelievers is that they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but instead they will inherit hell and the lake of fire. Galatians 6, verses 7 to 8, Paul tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And this can be applied to believers and unbelievers. For unbelievers, as we just said, it means the ultimate reaping of corruption again in hell and the lake of fire. For believers, it means the discipline of the Lord. It means God's discipline. The life of David and Bathsheba's infant son was taken by God as a consequence for their sin. Even while David was in those nine months of unrepentant sin, he comments how in Psalm 31.10, his strength failed and his body wasted away, these being further consequences. The immoral man of 1 Corinthians 5 was delivered over to Satan by Paul for the destruction of his flesh. 
so that his spirit may be saved and he wouldn't be able to sin anymore on this earth and bring shame upon the church anymore. We don't know about the the true heart condition of Ananias and Sapphira, but they were struck dead by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. And the disciples, as they withheld money, they had promised to the church. They were both deceivers and deceived. So again, there are consequences for allowing yourself to be deceived and taking up sin. Now, the next trait that we once were and we shouldn't want to return to is that we were enslaved to lusts and pleasures. Enslaved to lusts and pleasures. Enslaved, uh, deluo from doulos, we've talked a lot about that word, meaning to be subject to or in bondage to as a slave. Lust being desire uh, to desire something greatly and pleasures from hedonai which means delight enjoyment and gratification it's where we get the word hedonism from which is so prevalent in today's society as people wholeheartedly just seem to pursue their own self-gratification with with vigor in the new testament it often refers to physical pleasures In James chapter 4, 1 to 3, James asked the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And we already read from 1 John, but maybe it bears repeating this. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now going back to our text and how we also once were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, this is described well in Romans chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn to Romans 6, if you like. Romans 6, beginning in verse 6. In Romans 6, uh, 6-7, it's this great section where Paul teaches how believers are dead to sin, but they are alive to God. Picking up in verse 6, Paul writes, knowing this, that our old self, and just putting parentheses there, meaning our old sinful self, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Meaning, folks, it is gone. It It is dead. It is buried. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin we could include their various lusts and pleasures verse 7 for he who has died is freed from sin did you get that friends we were enslaved to it now we are free from it verse let's skip down to verse 12 Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You know, sometimes we we just don't realize when we have been given the golden ticket. The golden ticket. The golden ticket comes from a, it's a phrase that that comes from Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as far as I know, which in that book and movie has the owner of the factory, Willy Wonka, offer five golden tickets to five children who get to have the thrill of a lifetime by receiving a tour of this never-before-seen factory, and they receive a lifetime supply of chocolate. 
Now, you would think that the children who would win such an amazing prize would certainly appreciate this generous gift they've been given and just like be so thankful, just like on their best behavior while on the tour. But in all five cases, the children just seemingly can't help themselves. And one by one, they reveal their sin and their disobedience. And they receive the natural consequences. And in the process, greatly disappoint their benefactor. Only one. Charlie is convicted of his wrongdoing. And in an act of repentance, returns his everlasting gobstopper as an apology he changes from unrighteous to righteous and you think shouldn't we do the same i mean come on haven't we been given the most amazing golden ticket Uh, you know the we have been released from the prison of our sin we have this golden ticket of salvation I mean, why would we ever even consider returning to this life of grotesqueness, sin, unrighteousness? Shouldn't we be just so thankful and and so appreciative and so grateful to our benefactor, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we just would now want to seek to do righteously by him? And like Charlie who received it all because he didn't just get a lifetime supply of chocolate, if you remember. He got the whole factory. He got the whole kit and caboodle. We, too, we don't just get a lifetime supply. We get everlasting life. We get eternal life in our golden tickets. So, friends, the lusts and the pleasures of this world, believe me, I am preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to any of you. Whatever they might be for you, they are fleeting. They will soon be gone, and what will we be left with? And like a drug, these lusts and pleasures, they only provide a temporary high. But once you come off that high, there is nothing but emptiness at best and full-on destruction at worst. And you and I, you and I have been released from sin, the pit of hell and the lake of fire, and I just think, oh, shouldn't we act like it? Why is that so hard? Why is that so difficult? Shouldn't we just act like it? These next four, these next four, we're going to move through them a, a, a lot quicker. Um, Then we did these four. Number five on the list, malice. Malice. Spending our life in malice. Malice is simply wickedness as an evil habit of the mind. An evil habit of the mind. As in inherently evil, or we like to sometimes say rotten to the core, right? Rotten to the core. It is ill will towards others, but used here in the context of an ongoing pattern of life. It is one of those words that ends up on Paul's ungodly lists, right? There's many of those lists in the New Testament. Like for instance, Ephesians 4, 31, not giving you the whole list, but he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Or in Colossians 3, 8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth in 1 Peter 2, 1. Therefore, putting Aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And I think we can all agree that while every believer is living a life of wickedness to some degree, there are those who are obviously have that more obvious evil than others. We all know plenty of people who we would characterize as wicked and evil. At the time I was writing this, they had just caught the... uh, uh, the Pennsylvania fugitive Cavalcante. I think he would certainly fall into that category. He did some horribly evil and wicked and despicable things. And then there's the person, though, who tries to say, come off as good and moral, but really has evil motives going on in their hearts. And this is especially true of people like the Pharisees and the false teachers that we so often read about in the scriptures. 
Now, along with all malice, Paul also includes spending your life in envy. Envy, jealousy, which is conceived at the sight of excellence or happiness. We see something of excellence or somebody receiving some kind of something or happiness and we we get envious, we get jealous. One commentator says it is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity, end quote, or their success. Well, another says, quote, envy denotes a continual dissatisfaction with one's own position possessions or power as compared to that of another, end quote. And we see this characteristic also show up in many of Paul's lists, right? In Romans 1, 28 and 29, he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Look, we got a whole bunch of them in there. They are gossips. In Galatians 5 and verse 21, he says, envying and drunkenness and carousing and things like these. Uh, Then he says that uh, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 4. Uh, In regards to someone advocating a doctrine other than Christ Jesus, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arises envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. And I know, oh, this is a tough one. This is a tough one for many of us. I remember being, a, again, to go back to my acting days, a young actor with contemporaries, who were getting the parts and shows that I desired and being envious of them. And this happens with many of us and and even our station in life, and especially I think here in Los Angeles, you have this wide spectrum of the haves and the have-nots and this whole big swath in between, and it can be so easy to fall into that trap of being discontent. As everywhere you turn, you see, you see so many people with, with better jobs and, and better cars and, and bigger houses and better vacations and more money. And, but here's the thing. Envy doesn't just refer to the material. People can be envious of relationships and marriages and kids and family. And they can be envious of power and positions and prestige. And of course, the list goes on. Seventhly, seventhly, seventh, seventhly, I don't think it's a word. I think it was one of those made up a word. I think I could have my own Jay's dictionary by now of all the words that I've made up. Seventh, hateful. We were once hateful. Stugatos. Stugatos is the word. And this word is only found here in the New Testament. And it's characterized by detestable or despicable uh, behavior. It can certainly develop from envy. We start with envy and jealousy. It turns into being hateful. The envious person starts to detest and hate the one who has what they want. And again, you think back to Saul and his own jealousy that turned into hatred then of David. And then this goes along with the last one, so we'll get that one in there too, which is hating one another. It's actually a different Greek word than hateful, miseo, but Basically, it means hateful, less in a general sense, though, and more in a uh, direct ill will towards another person kind of way, and can also refer to persecuting somebody else. Uh, We see it in Luke 6 and verse 22, when um, Jesus uh, says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man right? Persecution. In John 15, uh, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. In 1 John 2, 9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And in 1 John three fifteen, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And lastly, 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And hating one another, especially a brother, is really a sign of living in the darkness of unbelief. You can't say you love God while you hate your brother. It is an impossibility. It, oil and vinegar doesn't mix, will never mix, doesn't work, can't be. All right. So, so what are we going to do with uh, all of these uh, reminders of what we once were? And, and I, I want our application this morning to be kind of uh, threefold, threefold. Firstly, we need to remember what we once were so that we never return there. We, we, in that sense, it's good. It's good to be reminded, to remember how we once were, what we were like, what we needed salvation from, so that we don't ever want to even go back to that kind of lifestyle. Let us not be like a dog who returns to its vomit. We don't want to be someone who has been set free from the prison of sin who then for some strange, bizarre reason goes, oh, my, my, you know what, I feel like going back to my cell tonight. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, it sounds kind of good. I'm going to go hang out in the, in the prison for, you know, a night or two. And we actually walk ourselves in there and close the door. Secondly, we don't want to ruin our testimony. We don't want these things to kind of come creeping back into our life because, remember, we've been talking about this and, 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 and it here in, in Titus 2 and 3 about how we need to be concerned for how we represent Christ out there in the world for the gospel's sake. And these these eight sinful characteristics, any of them showing up in your life as a Christian, you have to ask yourself, how is that going to bolster up my testimony? How is that going to help me be a, a better witness for the cause of Christ when these things are starting to show up in my life? And the, the truth is, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to help anything. And just the opposite, it's going to... Um, just cause people to not want to hear from you, not listen to you in regards to anything pertaining to Christianity. These characteristics would indeed ruin your Christian testimony and, of course, would get you labeled a hypocrite. It's not to say that we live perfect lives out there in the world. We know that we don't. And the minute, though, you see any of these or any other sin creeping up into your life or it has come out, and especially if you've been in a, a situation around other unbelievers, then of course what you need to do is repent in front of those same unbelievers so they at least see something different in that. That they at least see that you as a believer are willing to acknowledge your sin and ask forgiveness for it. And the, 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 the other kind of biggie answer to these first two things that I've just mentioned, and again, this is impressed upon me yesterday morning. I love that, man. I come out of a Saturday, I'm like running to my office. I gotta write these things down. These are good. Is we have to preach the gospel to ourselves, friends. We have to do this daily. Daily, hourly sometimes. Minute by minute even. Because again, the gospel is not just to save us. The gospel is what sanctifies us. The gospel is what causes us through this earthly life to become more like Jesus. And of course the gospel, we need to, to remember that Christ died for our sins. Right? That he, his body was broken, his blood shed just as we, we remembered and, and celebrated in communion this morning. That he went to the cross in our place, but that he then resurrected, giving us new life and, and trading out the old self for the new self. Remember Romans 6 and verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How? We shouldn't. We shouldn't want to. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That is the whole point. <coughs> so friends, we, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. And, and sometimes that means reminding ourselves of what we needed to be saved from. And, and let, it, let it make you shiver. Let it make you go, <laughs> right? Got to get that, oh, that taste out of my mouth. And then thirdly, remember this, kind of bouncing off from last week too, you can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. So out there in the world, you're going to see people live this kind of life. You're going to see people living lives of foolishness and disobedience and deception and enslavement to lust and pleasure and malice and envy and hatefulness and hating other people. But we have to beware not to let ourselves start hating them back or despising them for being these things. And, and last week we talked about that. Sometimes that shows up in the political arena with us, right? <clears throat> and we don't like what we see happening in politics and with politicians and the other side and what have you. And we, we, we start building up this resentment towards, towards people. And, or how could they, oh, that is so sick and that is gross. That is so detestable. How could they do that? Right? Uh, I'm sorry, such were some of us. That is exactly, we were all these things. And so we have to be so careful not to get on, climb up onto our, you know, theological, you know, high horse and this great Christian that I am. And, oh, how could you live like that, all you disobedient, detestable people? Because, again, these are the people that we say that we want to reach and that we want to see saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we just, we have to be careful there. Again, you can't expect the unbelievers to live like believers. And again, yes, this is how we also once were. Praise be to God, that is not our life now. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, as always, give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, for what we have been able to learn and glean from these truths. And sometimes, Father, it's good to remind ourselves and remember what we once were and be aboard by that, Lord, and, and just be aghast at that. So we, uh, we remember that we don't ever want to go back there. And, Lord, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day so that, Lord, we can also be the, the best witness we can be out there. And help us to just remember, Father, that um, such were all of us. We were this way and do not despise or detest those who are acting and behaving this way, but rather that we would still seek to um, lovingly give the gospel to them. Pray for anybody in here, Lord, if they need to repent and put their faith in Christ, that they would do so right now, even as I'm praying, that they would pray a prayer of repentance, and be reconciled to you. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.